The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. Last week we began our study of 1 Peter as we looked at the first two verses and we narrowed in on these two descriptors of who Peter was was writing to. You see that there in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. We spent most of our time together last week dealing with the doctrine of election. That is, God, before the foundation of the world, making a sovereign choice for who would be his people. Now, if you were not here last week, and if you have not had the chance yet, I would encourage you to go on to our podcast and to give that, that sermon a listen. You can go to uh, your podcast app uh, on your Apple device and search Christ Central Church, and it will come up there, and you can subscribe and, and listen to um, our sermons that are loaded there. And if you haven't listened to that, I would encourage you to go and listen um, to that, because... Um, This week is building off of last week. And that's sort of how this whole thing goes, right? Because we we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. So we're we're building as we move. Just like you would be reading a letter that somebody wrote you. You don't just jump in the middle and read. You lose context. You start at the beginning and read to the end. And so each week builds on each. And I know that in summer... Um, a lot of people are, are out for different week, reasons on different weeks. And so um, Jacob works hard each week to get those loaded up there for you to be able to listen to. And so if you haven't listened to last week's, then I would encourage you um, to go and listen to it. Now, I do want to reiterate what I said last week. And that is that I know that this doctrine of election or predestination, as some people um, term it, I know it can be difficult to understand, and it can be difficult in some cases to take. But that does not make it any less true. We have to, as the people of God, agree and resolve ourselves to say, We believe what the Bible says. And so if the Bible says that God in his foreknowledge predestined those um, who he would call, and those who he called he's justified, and those who he justified he would glorify. And you see this theme throughout the entire Bible. If If God's word says that, when we must take that. In the same way, if God's word says that God desires all to come to salvation and that no one should perish, we take that as well. And just because it's difficult for us to make sense of those two truths, it does not make them any less true. But the reality is that it is around this truth of election that many battles have been fought throughout history and and certainly in recent years. Some of these battles have taken place in our own convention, in the Southern Baptist Convention. And there have been sister churches that have split over this issue. Now, personally, I don't believe 
it's this issue that's at the heart of this division, but it's, it's framed that way anyway. This is, this is what frames the division, but usually a church is splitting over pride and an unwillingness to forgive one another. I want you to, to hear from me, and this is from Jacob and, and Terry as well, that in this church there is room and there are welcome here people who fall on all sides of this doctrine. Those who embrace it, those who are unsure about it, those who questioned it, all are welcome here because this is not an issue that should cause division within a church. And it is not an issue that we will allow to cause division here. As a matter of fact, it is the very opposite that is true. And it is the opposite that we see take place in this text today. You don't see division in this text. Instead, you see something totally different. You see in verses 3 through 5, four things that election produces. You see what it produces from us. You see what it produces in us. You see what it produces to us. And you see what it produces for us. Peter writes this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who were elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We see in these texts four things that election produces. Now, the reason why I believe that these verses can be framed this way is because of the consistency that Peter uses in his language and in his argument. You see a consistency of thought, a consistency of language, a consistency of theology. Paul begins saying, I am writing to those who are the elect exiles. That are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. As we talked last week, this speaks to the doctrine of election. But it doesn't just stop in verses 1 and 2. But Peter continues that into verse 3 as he says that it is according to his great mercy that he has caused us to be born again. 
That it is God in his power and in his foreknowledge and in his sovereignty that is doing the work causing us to be born again. This means it, it, by its very nature that there is a, 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 an acting agent that is acting to bring something about. That's what to call something to happen means, right? And it is God who is the acting agent that is working to bring about our being born again. It's God that is the one that is doing the work. Here's the reality when it comes to the doctrine of election and questions and understanding and all of those things. For me, it is not so much the when or the how, but the who that matters. It's not the when does this take place. Does it take place before the foundation of the world? Does it take place when we're born? Does it take place when we believe? It's not the how that it works. How it works. Is God working with us and our will? Is it only his will? It's not the, the when that matters the most to me. It's not the how that matters the most to me. But it is the who that matters the most to me. That we understand that it is God that does the work in our salvation. That yes, we must have faith. And yes, we must respond in faith. But it is God who is the acting agent in our salvation. It is God who is causing us to be born again. It is not from our own abilities. It is not from our own wills. The scripture says that if we were left to our own will, we would never desire God. Instead, we need God to act upon us, to cause us to desire Him, to cause us to be born again. This is what Peter's saying. He's caused us to be born again. These all speak to God being the acting agent in our salvation. God is the one doing the work, and we are the recipients of that work, and it is His work in election that produces things. That's why I believe that this... Verses can be framed under this understanding because there's consistency in the language here. So what is it that election is producing? Well, first we see that it, what it produces from us. And that's found in the first few words of verse 3. B, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Election produces worship. From us. Worship. It is as if the truths of verses 1 and 2 erupt into praise in verse 3. This is doxological. This is worship of God. This is Peter overflowing and erupting into praise for what God has Done. This word blessed here is a word that means praise. It means worship. It means adoration. What we see in this first clause of verse 3 is that what God has done for us should move us to worship. 
That's how it moves Peter. That's how it should move us. Church, this is why we stand and sing. Because it's what God has done for us that should move us to worship God for who He is and for what He's done. We should be driven there because of that. Listen, theological truth should always result in praise that is theological. Always. When we engage in theological truth, when we learn about who God is and what God has done, the response that should come from us is one of praise. Theological truth should always result in a praise that is theological. Now, why do I say it that way, that I praise that it's theological? I want you to look at how specific Peter is. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's not just a generic statement, is it? That's not just generic worship. No, it's far from that. This is specific worship of a specific God. This isn't just... Bless God, whatever that means to you. Worship God in whatever form He may take for you. No, this is praise and worship and adoration to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one God to worship. There is only one God who deserves our worship. There is only one God who is worthy of our worship. And that is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way to worship Him is through Jesus Christ. Because the only way to experience all that He has for us is through Jesus Christ. See, Peter's... Worship erupts out of theology, but it is also filled with theology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Theology fuels and it informs our worship. Theology drives us to worship. And in our worship, Theology is driven out of us in praise to God. But isn't it strange how this theological truth in particular can be twisted? For those who love this doctrine, the doctrine of election, it can often result in pride and in arrogance. It can result in a feeling like you know something that other people don't know. You figured out something that everybody else hasn't figured out. And it can result in, uh, in your heart, pride and arrogance. It's so easy for those who love theology to land in a place of a dull, lifeless head knowledge. But this isn't the case for Peter. That should never be the case. 
As we learn about God, that's theology. As we learn truths about God, it should never result in just a dull, lifeless head knowledge. Instead, it should always move us, push us, drive us towards a vibrant worship of God. But often we don't see that. We don't see that in this doctrine very often. For those who deny this doctrine, they could hear it being preached. It can result in anger and in frustration. But this is never the way that it should be. As we engage with God's word, as we engage in doctrine, as we engage in theology, it should move us to worship. That's what it does for Peter. That's what it should do for all of us. The doctrine of election should result in our worship. And here is why. Because when we believe that we did the decisive thing that made us be born again, we don't get floored by His mercy. But when we understand it was all God, then we should erupt in praise. That's what I mean when I say that the the emphasis shouldn't be the when or the how, but the who. That it is all God and God's mercy and God's grace that works to bring about the salvation of the sinner. And when we understand that, we should be driven to worship Him. This is what Peter is saying. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again. Peter is driven to worship because he understands that it was according to the great mercy of God that caused him and has caused us to be born again. That it had nothing to do with Peter. It had everything to do with God. I think Peter, of all people, understood this. I mean, he just kept messing up. Could you imagine that the very last time you see Jesus, He's watching you deny Him? And you've given up and lost all hope, so much so that you've just gone back to fishing. Peter understands the great mercy of God. That it's God who's done the work in him and it's driven him to worship. Mercy is a gracious activity towards an undeserved person. That's what mercy is, a gracious activity towards an undeserved person. For something to be considered mercy, you must have one on the part of the recipient a need. And two on the part of the provider, the ability and a willingness. That's mercy. You must have one who needs something. You must have one who is able and willing to give that something. That's mercy. 
This is us and God. We are needy. We are unable. We have nothing to bring, nothing to offer but our sin. But the good news of the gospel is God is able and willing to give to those who are needy, to give grace and to give mercy. When we don't deserve it, He gives it anyway. This is His great mercy and it has caused us to be born again. And it's that truth that should produce from us a worship of Him. A worship of Him. That's what it produces from us. Worship. Next we see what it produces in us. And that is new birth. Peter says that it is according to His great mercy that He has caused us to be born again. Caused us to be born again. I love this because this means that this doctrine of election isn't just theological. It's practical. It does something. It produces something. It produces new birth. This is the greatest need for any person. When we say mercy is dependent on someone with a need and someone who's willing and able to give, this is the greatest need. This is your greatest need. This is my greatest need. This is the greatest need of every person. And that is to be born again. Now, why is that the greatest need? Because this is the requirement to enter the kingdom of God. This is it. How do we know that? Jesus told us that. John 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see what Jesus was doing there? Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, what you're saying is is right. And what you're saying is true. But it's not enough. Your profession of me as having a, a power, and having an ability... Coming from God is not enough. Nicodemus, you must be born again. If you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, this this new birth is not a physical new birth. It's a spiritual new birth, Nicodemus. You must be born again spiritually if you want to see the kingdom of God. This is not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Then listen to verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. 
and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What's Jesus saying is that the Spirit moves as the Spirit chooses. Where it decides. Where He wants to go. That's where the Spirit goes. Where He wants to go. Don't marvel at this. The Spirit does what the Spirit wants. Because the Holy Spirit is the sovereign God, Nicodemus. And if you want to see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, you must be born again spiritually. Nicodemus, you need new birth. Just like Nicodemus, we need new birth. We need it because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We need it because we are blind to spiritual things. We need it because we are unable to love, to honor, to obey, or to choose God. We need it because we are rebellious, proud, self-seeking, and sinful. We need it because we are faithless. This is our state as sinful men and women. Because of this, we are dependent on God to act on us. And God does this by bringing a new birth, by bringing forth a new person, spiritually, totally new. Where there once was darkness, there is now light. Where there once was death, there is now life. Where there was once rebellion, there is now obedience. Where there was once sin, there is now righteousness. Where there was once faithlessness, there is now faith. Where there was once hatred of the things of God, there is now a love of God. This is what the new birth brings. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is our state if God does not act upon us. But God, being rich in mercy. You see, this is what Peter says. He's caused us to be born again according to His great mercy. But God, being rich in mercy, because we have a need, and He has an ability and a willingness, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. This is the new birth. By grace you have been saved. This is what happens when God comes and works and uses His strength and His power to bring forth a new life. Because this kind of change could not happen incrementally. This kind of change cannot happen by us trying hard. This kind of change cannot happen by self-help. It has to be a total and complete change. A new birth. A new life. And this is what God through His sovereign choice produces in us for His glory. 
a new birth. Election should produce from us worship. It produces in us a new birth. And it gives to us a living hope. Now I want you to follow with me what we've seen. That before the foundation of the world, God, according to his foreknowledge, chose who will be his people. And those he's chosen, he shows mercy to. And this mercy has resulted in a new birth. And this new birth that comes from his mercy, that comes from his foreknowledge, produces a hope. This this is... Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It gives us a living hope. Now this hope isn't just A wishful thinking. This hope isn't just a deep desire. That's the way we understand hope, right? It's just like a deep desire. Man, I hope that's going to happen. That's just a deep desire. But this is not a a wishful thinking. This is not a, a deep desire. This is not a fingers crossed kind of thing. This hope is a strong confidence. And it's a strong confidence, not in ourselves or not in our circumstances. It's a strong confidence in God. This is what we see in Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall praise Him, my salvation. See, for the psalmist, this isn't just a fingers crossed. This is a confidence that in God, He is able to do anything. And that He has proven that He is able to do anything. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now that we've been born again, we know Not only is he able to do anything, but he's willing to do it for us. This is hope. This is living hope. That God is able to do anything because he has done the hardest thing. The thing that no one can do. Defeat death. And now He's caused us to be born again. And now we know not only is He able to do anything, but He's willing to do it for us. Our hope is living because our hope has a name and His name is Jesus Christ. And He is alive. And because He's alive, our hope is alive. Because He is living, our hope is living. Because our hope is Him. According to His great mercy, He's 
caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Jesus was resurrected. Because God chose us according to His great mercy to be born again. Then we too will be resurrected. That is our hope. Now do you see how all this works together? How it has worked together that since the foundation of the world, since before the foundation of the world, that God has been acting for us, towards us, on us, in us, and He's been doing it to give us a living hope. This is what God has been doing. This is what God is doing. From the beginning of time, from before the foundation of the world. Working to bring about our salvation, our new birth, and in it a living hope. This is what God is doing. It's producing from us worship, producing in us a new birth. Giving to us a living hope and producing for us an inheritance. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God is working and has been working and is working to produce for us an inheritance. Now you know what an inheritance is. An inheritance is something that will be ours. An inheritance by its very nature is something that is given by another. By definition, it is something that we don't earn but is given to us, right? That's an inheritance. You didn't earn it. This other person earned it. And now they're giving it to you. That's an inheritance. That's what God is doing in Jesus Christ according to His great mercy for us. Jesus Christ earning, doing the work, Doing the saving work on the cross. Doing the producing work now in heaven, right? For if I go, I will go and prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. He's the one doing the work. He did the work on the cross. He's doing the work in heaven now to prepare it. And one day, He comes and He gives to us an inheritance that He did all the work for that we don't deserve. He freely gives it to us. According to His grace, mercy, because before the foundation of the world, God chose us to be His people. He gives us an inheritance. Now, what do we learn about this inheritance? We learn some things here. We learn five things that Peter tells us. First thing we learn is that it is in heaven. It is in heaven. Our inheritance is in heaven. Here's what that means, church. That means our inheritance is not here. The promised land is not 
Second Avenue. As much as we want a building, as much as we're excited about a building, that is not the promised land. That is not our home. This is not our home. We are exiles. Our inheritance is in heaven. Your inheritance as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is not the promise of a good life on this earth. It is not the promise of an easy life. It is not the promise of a suffering-free life. You see the exact opposite of that in the Scriptures, and we learn the exact opposite of that in 1 Peter. That is not our inheritance. Our inheritance is not on this earth guaranteed healing. Our inheritance is in heaven. It is not here. We are exiles. Praise God, we're elect exiles. We're exiles. We have a home. We have an inheritance. It's in heaven. And it is, secondly, imperishable. That means that it is not subject to destruction. It can never be lost. Do you understand why this should be important to the people of God? Because for generations... The inheritance, the promised land, was a physical land. Right? God promised a physical land. That was his promise he made to Abraham. That's that's the promise he's working out. That he will bring the people of God to a physical land. That's why Moses, you got to let my people go. We're going to the promised land. Well, what happened? It was destroyed. It was lost. Because it it never was the main point. It was just a foreshadowing of what is to come in heaven. Because there, there is an inheritance that is imperishable. It is not subject to destruction. It can never be lost. It's undefiled. Peter says. That means that it is unstained. It is unpolluted. Now, I'm not talking about emissions here. I'm talking about the stain and the pollution of sin is not known there. If you realize all we know, church, all we know In this world is the stain of sin. Everywhere we turn, everywhere we look, even in the mirror, the stain of sin. But one day, we'll receive an inheritance that is unstained. You see, this is the part of heaven that I cannot comprehend. There's a lot of heaven that's hard to grasp, This is the part that's just, what's it going to be like? For there to be zero stain of sin. For it to be totally and completely undefiled. That's what it's like there for us. That's our inheritance. It's in heaven and it is there and it is imperishable. It is undefiled and it is unfading. Peter says. This word unfading describes a flower that would never wither or die. It means that our inheritance there 
will never lose its magnificence. That's a hard word. Magnificence. We'll never lose it. It'll never, it'll never lose it. You know, I don't know about, if you've ever been anywhere that's just beautiful and just, you know, and all, wow. This is amazing. You know, you go to the beach for the first time and you just, you know, by the fifth time, it's like, yeah, it's the beach. It's sandy and busy and a hassle to haul everybody's stuff down there. It kind of loses its awe and its wonder. It loses its magnificent magnificence. We get used to things, but in heaven, it never, not for one second, will there ever be a loss of awe. Never will it fade away. And then fifthly, we learn that it is kept for us. It's kept for us. To an inheritance that is imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That our inheritance is being kept for us as we are being guarded by faith. That it is God who is keeping heaven for us. God is the one preparing it. God is the one keeping it. He's the one that's keeping it imperishable and unfading and undefiled. And not only is He keeping it that way, He's keeping us for it. He is guarding us by faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed on the last day. That it is God who is the one keeping us. This is so important. And you see how all of this now ties together. What what Peter's saying, you trace it from verse 1. You are the elect Exiles. Verse 2, those who according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, the sprinkling of His his blood. That it's God who did the work in the beginning and it is God who does the work all the way to the end. That you did nothing to earn it and you do nothing to keep it. It's God. The whole way through. This is Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for all of us, how will we not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of 
Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you see the themes? The exact same themes in 1 Peter. A theme of election. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The theme of resurrection, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised and is at the right hand interceding for us. The theme of being exiles. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The theme of God keeping us. No one can separate us from the love of God. Church, out of these five verses, my hope, my prayer is that we walk away from them in awe that it is God who has done the work. That it is God who is doing the work. It is God who will do the work. And that should move us to worship. Now it's okay to have questions. It's okay to not understand everything. It's okay to wonder. It's not okay to have division. It's not okay to think it's all you. It's not okay to not worship. Because theological truth should produce from us worship. Because it has produced in us a new birth. It's given to us a living hope. And it's producing for us an inheritance. All by the sovereign, all-powerful, loving, gracious, merciful God who does the work. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.